Hi, friends. Welcome to the All Season Podcast. My next guest is Kirsten Fazy. She is a PhD student at Nottingham Trent University. She is the first author of the latest article, Defining and Characterizing Organizational Resilience in Elite Sport. In this episode, she explains in depth about how they came to define organizational resilience stemming from past research on complex adaptive systems. She was also a lawyer for 20 years prior to entering the field of sport and exercise psychology, and she explains how that transition has been. Please enjoy. This podcast is also brought to you by Strength.com. Strength.com offers the best grass-fed protein that is also NSF certified. It means it is the highest quality and it is certified for sport. If you're looking to gain muscle or just add protein to your diet, go to Strength.com and you can use All Season 25 for 25% off any product. This podcast is also brought to you by Vision Pursue. Vision Pursue helps build a performance mindset by challenging our automatic thinking patterns that are counterproductive through mental skills training. This helps the individual rewire their perspective to experience their daily lives with more fulfillment. If you'd like to know more about VP and how they can improve satisfaction and relationships with others in your workspace, feel free to email me at spark0881 at gmail.com. It's never easy. <laughs> um, thank you for joining me today. Uh, Kirsten, you are a PhD student at Nottingham Trent University. That's right. How are you doing? I'm really good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great now that you're here. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, so, you know, to get started, I wanted to learn more about your background. Okay. Um, you told me that you were a lawyer before you started grad school. Um, why did you make that change and how difficult was that? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, and I think I'm still asking myself a little bit. Uh, so I was a lawyer for about 20 years um, in commercial property, really enjoyed it. Um, but then I got to about 40 and I figured if I'm going to do something else, um, because I, my heart wasn't in it as much anymore, if I'm going to do something else, I need to retrain and get on with it because I've then got another 20 years in a different career. Um, so, and at the same time, I was doing uh, a lot of triathlons. I'd started to get into that. And um, particularly, I was drawn to long distance triathlons. So you've got a lot of time to think and a lot of time to think about, you know, goal setting, motivation, all of that becomes a really important part. And sure. it's more about the, the training and making sure you can go out and train than it is about the competition. Um, so it's all that kind of background structural stuff that I was really interested in um, rather than necessarily the the, the competition. Um, but so when I found out you could do a job as a sports psychologist, I was like, well, why didn't anybody tell me this before? Because I thought you, know, <laughs> you could be a lawyer, you could be a doctor, you could be like a fireman. Um, but I didn't know about sports psychology. So when I found out about that, I was like, right, that's it. That's the one for me. So I went off and did um, over here, you needed to do a, a, a master's in psychology first and then a master's in sports psychology. Um, and then uh, Dr. Mustafa Saka, who's my director of studies now, contacted me um, as he did with everyone in his network and said, look, um, I'm running a PhD on um, organizational resilience in sport. I'd never meant to do a PhD. Um, that wasn't part of the plan. But it just, it was one of those things that just, you know, you've got to realize when these opportunities hit you, you've got to recognize them as opportunities. Um, and so it seemed a really good merger with my background in business. So I applied for it. And I know it was a very difficult decision. Um, because I didn't have a background in academia. So I think there were other people <laughs> that were better suited to it. But luckily, Dr. Saka decided to take um, 
take a risk on me. And here I am three years later. Here. Yeah, here you are. Um, you know, I have to congratulate you because I think something people often talk about is that they are afraid to make a switch in careers because they talk about a sunken cost, right? You spend so much time in the field already. You said it yourself. You spent 20 years being a lawyer. If I was in your shoes and I was a lawyer for 20 years and I had to do two masters, a master's in psychology and then a master's in sports psych, I probably would not do that. Um, I don't think I would have the the determination to make that switch after spending so much time. So, um, you know, congratulations. You, you, you have the fortitude to do that and commit to that. Uh, and that's awesome to hear. Um, is there something unexpected you've come across doing your master's in sports psych? Is it as interesting as you thought of before? Is there some parts where you're just like, man, they didn't tell me about the boring research stuff. Is there, is there a difference that you have come across? Yeah, it was, there, there were lots of really scary things actually that I kind of wish I didn't, didn't know. So for example, when I did psycho the psychology masters, we covered like a whole heap of different areas um, quite quickly over the course of a year. And one of them was developmental psychology. And I've got, um, two kids and two stepkids there's four four kids and I'm really glad that I didn't know how much influence and impact I was having on them during their their early years because that would have really scared me it's scary enough as it is so I was kind of glad I didn't know about that earlier um and then with the sports psychology I think um so a massive part of it is behavior change essentially um, right. Particularly the so over here the the, the masters was in um, sport and exercise psychology and the exercise psychology is a lot about you know how you nudge people to change their behaviours um, and I found that aspect really uh, fascinating because I I thought it was going to be all about goal setting and motivation and how to overcome the yips in golf and all these things we know about um, and attentional focus and so on um, so to say um, and then again as, as a parent applying some of those things how do you get your kids to do homework um, well you can use some of the, um, the you know the findings in exercise psychology about behavior change so that was really cool <laughs> so yeah didn't expect those Awesome. Yeah, I mean, um, I think something that is interesting when you think about sport and exercise psychology is we always think of the top tier elite athletes uh, using sports psych, but we forget to think about those on the opposite side of that who have absolutely zero interest in exercise, and we have to somehow influence them to start. Um, so one of your advisors is Mustafa. Uh, I've, I've seen him in a lot of presentations. He, I love his first name. Um, and <laughs> hopefully, uh, I'll get a ha I'll have a chance to have a conversation with him in the near future. Um, how has the, uh, experience been, you know, working under him and, um, you said they were focused on organizational resilience, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Sorry, so I was just, yeah, I was going to say in terms of um, the PhD, it's been a real journey. Um, working with um, Dr. Sarka, as you say, is, um, you know, he's got a lot of expertise around resilience. You've probably heard him talking about um, resilience in individuals and in athletes. And he's started to then expand his focus a bit more to look at the environment that athletes are operating in. Um, so, but that's, uh, and this, uh, body of researchers as well one of his um peers when he was doing his phd um a lady called uh, dr rachel arnold does a lot of work around organizational stresses um so this idea that you know what's happening in the organization is going to impact the athlete um my research is kind of a bit beyond that because i'm really looking at more i suppose it combines sports psych with sport management um, so it's not just looking at the performance team and the impact on athletes, but it's really thinking about how the organization as a whole 
functions, whether that's the finance, that's the marketing, um, that's the operations, the events people, the membership. Um, so all those different areas of sports organisations that it's as sports psychs, I don't think people have really explored yet. So I think people, are, you, you sort of start to think about the athletes, you think about then working with the coaches um, you to perhaps think about working with the wider performance teams so the medical staff and physios and so on. But I think there's so much as high performance advisors that sports site can offer to, you know, um, other aspects of the organization. So as I say, that's where I'm kind of looking at more the, the, the management and, and the backroom functions rather than just the performance team. Um, and then I've also got um, uh, three other supervisors, um, but the main other one to mention that people might have come across is um, a guy down in Portsmouth called uh, Dr. Chris Wagstaff. And his expertise is in, so uh, uh, Mustafa uh, is, you know, resilience. And then Chris Wagstaff is like the organisational side of sport organisations. So this thing, as I'm saying, that people are just starting to look at the wider sport environment and that's his background so um two of those together together with um dr julie johnston and um dr mary neville and my two other supervisors but they're kind of they're the areas that really fit with what i'm doing yeah it almost sounds like a a merge between like sports psychology and uh industrial organizational psychology exactly um and you know two-part question one what excites you about this line of research and two, where does it come from, right? Because I know um, you said before, organizational resilience doesn't necessarily come from pure sports psych, but it comes from somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. So can you can you elaborate on that? Sure. Um, in terms of what excites me about the research, it was, uh, um, you know, you go on this journey when you're doing the research and you kind of, you start off looking at your bit. And then you realise there's so many other in interconnecting areas and you get really scared because there's no way you could <laughs> know about all those different things. And there's all these experts right. in like 20 different areas and you're thinking, how on earth can I get my head around all of this? And then it kind of comes back down. Then I started doing the research and going out and speaking to a lot of people um, who are leading um, a lot of the top sports organisations um, in this country and, and beyond. <laughs> And, um, and and you realise it's it's really simple. A lot of it is it's basically about um, relationships and communication. And you try and wrap it up then to make it sound more like a PhD, right? Because you can sound <laughs> really academic. Um, but you know, it's essentially it's about how people can form better relationships and have better communication between them. Is it, it, so when you realise that's a, the nub of it all, you think, well, this is great because. You know, this helps so many people in so many different areas. There's so much we can do about this. So right. I think it's kind of like it was that bringing it back to the real basics, the simple stuff was what what really excites me. Um, in terms of where organisational resilience comes from, so I've already mentioned that um, Mustafa Saka, um, and he did a lot of his early research with um, Chapford from Loughborough called Dr. David Fletcher, um, and they looked at individual resilience in athletes. And then um, there's a body of we, uh, research led by um, certainly the lot of stuff in this country is um, Paul Morgan, who's looking at team resilience, um, and he's done a lot of work in rugby, um, but elsewhere as well. Um, but then on the organisational side, you just mentioned, Sonny, that, you know, you've got this sort of industrial organisational side, uh, side to it. From there, you, you had um, research around what's called high reliability organisation research. That's about risk management. So these are like your electricity company, let's say, you know, organisations that can't really fail um, or a nuclear power plant. You know, you don't want them to keep having like areas of judgment and things that are going wrong in their organization and loads of crises because it causes really big problems. So you've got this kind of high reliability. How do we stop having problems? And then you've got a body of research around crisis sort of disaster management. Um, and there's a big body of work around some New Zealand researchers. Um, they, they've done a lot of work. So in Christchurch, they had an earthquake. Um, 
quite a while ago, about 10 years ago. And they did a lot of work around, you know, this real disaster and the recovery and how the organizations recover from that. And this is like organizational resilience is like a fusion between the two. So it's a bit about, you know, how do you prepare to make sure you don't get hit so hard by problems? Um, but it's also about, you know, how then do you deal with it when things do happen? Because things happen. Um, there's no greater example of that than the moment at the moment. So um, that's kind of the background is says a bit about the resilience in other areas in sport, a bit about um, risk management, a bit about um, crisis management. There's some other streams as well around organizational learning and so on. Um, and then, and then, so there's a lot of people who've done research in organizational resilience. Um, so early work was like in healthcare, so um, in the hospitals um, in the US um, and elsewhere. Um, there was some work around airlines coming out of the 9 11 um, disaster, um, looking because obviously that had a massive impact on airline companies. Um, so looking at how some of those coped better than others, what, what were the underlying factors there? Um, there's some work around entrepreneurial organisations, um, what they can do. So there's this whole kind of um, growing area of organisational resilience, but it's never been looked at before in elite sport organisations. So um, that's kind of the background. Um, but then what I'm looking at is, um, you know, really new in this area. I see it. It's coming from a really big business background. And when I thought of organizational resilience um, initially, um, I thought of it as really similar to uh, team resilience, um, just because my simple brain just connected the two. Um, and, you know, it's, I feel like it's really hard to predict those uh, consequences in a sports psychology perspective because a lot of sport organizations, they view success and failure based on pure outcomes, right? Um, and, and when I think of team or organizational resilience, my brain automatically references to like an authority figure, like who is leading um, the entire organization to success, right? Uh, who is embodying leadership, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it seems like your research is more of not thinking of any person, um, but more of just defining what organization resilience really is. Yes. Yeah, so there's a really interesting, um, shift in thinking that I've had during my research that I think is really helpful to kind of frame it. Um, so there's there's work around um, what's termed complex adaptive systems. So this is the idea that um, yeah, I know it sounds it sounds complicated and, and, it, and it's not particularly but I suppose it's this this idea that actually it's accepting that the world is messy. OK, um, sure. and there's so many different interacting factors that this idea that we can have this kind of nice, neat, closed system, um, whether you're talking about an individual or a team or an organisation that's got like a start and an end to it. Um, and we can just study that and, um, and and then play around with some factors and, and we'll get some outcomes, maybe. Um, that's not real. That's not the real world. And in reality, there are so many different interacting factors in, um, you know, a complex system. Um, so instead of looking at constituent parts, maybe how you can tweak them and then looking at, um, you know, a defined outcome at the end, you have to start off by accepting that you can't get there. You can't grab hold of it all because it's too complicated. So then what you're starting to look at is patterns of interaction um, and feedback within the system. And this idea that the system has emergent properties. So you cannot control what goes on within the organization. You can tweak it and you can facilitate certain bits. Um, but you can't say, right, I want to get there. And if I do this, then I'm going to get there because there's so many different gotcha. um, uh, uh, influences. So all you can do is, is nudge it. 
So then when you look at leadership, which is essentially what you're talking about, you know, is organisational resilience mainly to do with the leaders? And there's a lot of work around um, leadership and transformational leadership and, and so on. Um, but it's saying <laughs> this idea that you have these great leaders who can predict what's going to happen in the future and they can strategize and they can take an organisation from A to B, you, you it's it's a nice idea and it's quite comforting and as human beings we like narratives particularly ones with causation so we really like mm -hmm. to think that we can figure out that a predicts b and that's the story we tell so much of it is chance so much of it is luck right we, we, we don't, that doesn't really sit comfortably with us um but even in sport you know any athlete knows that you know, it's a huge amount of hard work, but it's also a huge amount of luck or bad luck or, or timing, whatever you want to call it. Um, so this is shifting to instead of thinking, how do we help leaders to predict the future and control the future, which we'd quite like to do. And if we could figure that out, we'd like sell a million books and we'd be rich. <laughs> it's saying, actually, you've been sold a bit of a, a myth there. Um, and the most that leaders can do is it's like they're kind of trying to steer the ship. So they're, they're trying to get all the bits of the organisation to talk to each other. That's a huge part of it so that they can sense what's going on. Um, and then they they sort of set the direction that they want uh, the organisation to go in. But their job is to make sure that there are these relationships and communications so that that happens. And they don't really control how it gets there, why it gets there. Um, but their job is to kind of just make oil the rest of the machinery within the organisation and then get out of the way. Um, and at the moment, you know, there's no better example of it than everyone's so acutely aware at the moment of how little control we have over things, how uncertain things are, how quickly they can change. And the job of a leader, um, and I was talking to somebody the other day, um, and they were talking about how their board, you know, wanted their five-year forecast. Um, and I was laughing with them because it's like, how can anybody, you know, produce a five-year budget at the moment? If you, you know, we can all write something on a piece of paper and it can have five years on it. But the idea that that's going to bear sure. anything to reality is just a joke. Um, so instead of focusing on all this kind of budgeting and control and strategizing, a lot of the resilience stuff is actually about um, instead just being really aware of what's going on now. Um, and then adapting as you go, um, sensing when you need to make changes and tweaks rather than a big planning, a big strategizing, setting the course and then letting it go. And there's some great work um, around ants, which is probably not what you're expecting me to say. And I do mean ants. Um, I wasn't expecting <laughs> you to say that. <laughs> Which is about like how, um, you know, when ants and in their nests, how they all know what's going on, where to, you know, find the food and then where to follow trails and who's going to do what. Because you haven't got a leader like people think of the queen ant, but they're, they're not. They're just in, in the, the bottom of the nest making babies. So how right. do the rest of them know what to do? Um, and the research around this is about essentially complex adaptive systems and this idea of emergence, which is that, you know, if and with them, it's about pheromones is how they communicate. And luckily we can talk rather than just emit smells. Um, but it's this constant kind of sensing of what each other is doing as you come across each other, as they pass each other in the ant's nest. They're like sensing, where did you go? What's happening? Is there danger? Da, da, da. And then tweaking what they do as a result. And you have this kind of emergent system of behaviours that works really well without anybody in kind of command and control. Um, so that's kind of the framework against which a lot of my research is set. Yeah, I think something that you said was really interesting um, that I agree with is the um, really high uh, unpredictability of life. You know, like a leader can't account for every uh, obstacle that's going to be, you know, coming forth. 
And uh, I think we often, as people, just generally like to blame the person in charge when we do face an unexpected obstacle of life. Um, That is just what we naturally have a tendency to do. Um, Now, you, in your research, you, um, you interviewed a lot of people and came together to create a definition of organizational resilience. Um, Is it okay if I read that out loud? Yeah, please do. Okay. And you can correct me if I, if I, if I copied and pasted it wrong. Uh, The dynamic capability of an organization to successfully deal with significant change. It emerges from multi-level interacting characteristics and processes which enable an organization to prepare for, adapt to, and learn from significant change. Yeah. Um, Two questions. One, what do you mean by success here? And two, what do you mean by significant change? Because I feel like those two are very subjective terms. Anyone can view success differently. Anyone can view significant change differently, right? Yeah. So um, if you don't mind, I might get a bit geeky at this point and um, go in to explain um, a bit of the background to the research um, so that it kind of explains where we, we got these terms from. So um, within... Yeah, hit it. <laughs> Geek out. Um uh, so within the, the PhD, I this is my first study, as you say, looking at definition and characteristics. And I should mention that I've um, done uh, three other studies, which I'm in the process of kind of writing up and analysing at different stages. Um, and so a lot of what I was, I've been talking about up till now is from across all those different um, studies rather than just from this one. Um, but focusing on this first study and this paper specifically, so we were really interested in, this is the first time we're, look, we're looking at organisational resilience in elite sports. So it'd be really good, you know, uh, research 101, you start out with a definition of what it is that everybody can get on board with. But when you're talking about something quite abstract, such as resilience, how do you um, talk to people to kind of get them to agree a definition without giving them a definition um, to, you know, to make sure everyone's talking about the same thing. So what we did was, um, it was something called the Delphi method, um, which is quite uh, unusual still in, in sports psych. And, but it comes from, it started in about the 1950s in um, policy forecasting research, where the idea is that you get a panel of experts. So that's really important to this method that, you know, you're you're bringing on board um, a bunch of people. You've got quite diverse perspectives, but they've all got expertise. Um, And then you're trying to move them over a period of time towards consensus on something. So we thought, well, this this really suits our purpose of getting a definition. So we looked at all the literature, you know, so when we spoke earlier, we were talking about, you know, there being individual literature, um, team resilience literature, you've got organisational resilience in other areas, and there's lots of um, facets of resilience, and people um, put emphasis on different bits. So essentially, when you're talking about resilience, you're always talking about some kind of adversity, disruption, change, something like that. And you're talking about um, some kind of positive outcome. So we were really, along with some other things which go into the definition um, around that multi-level stuff and about the planning and adapting and so on. But in that first bit about successfully dealing with significant change, we were trying to get some wording that people could all get behind that kind of, you know, is it is change are we talking about you know big disasters so these are these sort of one-off really significant um events that then kind of hit you almost unexpectedly you maybe have no control over and then you kind of recover um can it include internal self-instigated change in an organization so let's say you know turnover of key personnel might be you know a strategic change and so um, certainly in uh, England, in the, um, you know, in football, 
the the football the managers um, of the teams change every five minutes, right? So that's a constant change that the organisation needs to deal with. Um, so you know, or or so can it involve say big one-off changes? Is it does it have to be negative? Because again, with change and with adversity, particularly in an organisation, you've got lots of different perspectives, and what might be really negative for one person might somebody else might see as an opportunity um so you know the change in key personnel um or something even like the you know coronavirus pandemic for most people it's pretty negative but some might see it as an opportunity to expand market share to get more in touch with their membership base whatever so you know does it always have to be in the individual resilience literature, they talk a lot about adversity and stresses, and they've got quite a lot of negative connotations. But we realised we needed to strip that out when you're talking about an organisation, because, as you say, something could be positive or negative. Um, and are, as you say, are we looking at really slow-moving changes? Are we looking at sudden changes? Are we looking at both um, both things? So with all these kind of different questions we asked in the survey for a lot of these questions people came back and kept saying it can be both all these things you're talking about we think all of this is kind of part of what resilience is um so we had to use a phrase that kind of um, this significant change encapsulated all these different elements but it needs to be significant because just change change is happening all the time Right. So so if we're talking about just dealing with change, then it's essentially how to be a decent organisation. So to be resilient, it has to be a significant change, Um, significant being beyond the boundaries of what you would normally expect that organisation to deal with in their day to day um, environment, in their day to day operation. So that's what we're talking about there. But it can be a, it can include a whole number of things. So that's significant change. And then successfully dealing with, again, like you say, what, what success? I mean, first of all, how do you measure it? Is it the performance of the, the team or the athletes on, on the field of play? Um, are we talking about finance? Um, are we talking about membership numbers? Are we talking about participation? As we were saying earlier, you know, sport and exercise is, is not just the elite athletes. It's about, you know, getting people off the sofa and um, going out for a run or whatever it might be. So there's so many different measures of success. Um, and also, you know, does it mean um, we were talking earlier about like the high reliability organisations? So for them, it's really important that they never fail. Um, so success is not having any kind of adversity, nothing hitting them that they have to bounce back from. Whereas for an entrepreneurial um, business, you fail all the time. If you're not failing, you're not learning. Um, so for them, success is, you know, a series of kind of small scale failures that you learn from and build on. So here, when we talk about um, successfully dealing with, again, our respondents in in this study um, said, you know, it can be so many of these things and we want to keep it quite wide. So successfully dealing with is essentially doing better than expected, better than your average elite sport organisation might do if they were faced with the same circumstances as you. But both these terms are kept purposefully wide because that's what people were telling us they wanted to, um, to be able to include. Yeah, it does make sense to me. I see that in terms of significant change, it should be neutral because the perspective of being negative or positive is kind of out there. Mm-hmm. Um, something I wanted to bring up before is that, you know, culture is not mentioned in organizational resilience. Um, why is that? So um, culture is part of it. Um, but it's one of many factors that go into it. So culture can be seen in um, a lot of the the, the sport um, cultural research that's being published at the moment, and there's a bit more interest in it um, just recently. So I mentioned one of my supervisors, um, Chris Wagstaff, and he's done some work with um, Suzanne Burton-Wiley, who's had some publications around this this kind of stuff, and the, um, uh, uh, this uh Dr. Maitland and a few others. Um, So culture can mean something like the personality of the organisation. It's it's 
traits yeah. sort of quite slow moving its characteristics and it can also mean the setting the environment um uh in which behaviors are taking place i tend to prefer to differentiate between the two i tend to sort of um talk about the latter as being the environment um and the former as being the, the culture um so the the culture of the organization is one factor um, that will come into an organization's resilience, but it's not the only one. So in the same way that um, if you're talking about individual resilience, you might talk about individual characteristics um, made up of that person's personality traits. Um, you might also then talk about having you know, a particular suite of capabilities, coping skills. Um, so we talk about organisational um, capabilities in that respect. Um, and you also talk about the context in which that individual is operating. So culture is, the organisational culture is, is part of what makes an organisation resilient, but it's not the, the whole story. That was a great way of explaining that and um, making sense for me because organization, it's a, it's a group of people. Um, everybody has a personality. Culture of a group of people is the personality of those individuals. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, and there's there's also, and I should just say at this stage, there, there's kind of quite a contested view of whether culture really exists anyway, which is a whole different sure. discussion. But this idea that an, an organisation has a cohesive culture, that everybody who works in that organisation knows what it is and experiences the same thing, is again you know perhaps not not reality so i know you you know you're um you work uh, with the military a lot and you that is probably one of the the areas of one of the most distinctive cultures um a, lo a lot of other organizations don't have that distinctive a uh, culture so you know you've got individuals who who might come from different countries or from different parts of the country and they've got different home lives different circumstances and then you've got teams and there might be little cultures within those teams the ways of doing things and the individual leader within that team might have an influence on kind of the look and feel of that and then you've got the organization its mission statement its values um, and then then you've got the setting in which you operate so if you are working within um, cycling versus working within gymnastics versus working within baseball you know all those sports and the wider environment they've also got quite distinctive cultures and all of those right. things will bring to bear on the organization so again this idea that an organization has a singular cohesive culture that everybody experiences the same is you know starting to be questioned and it comes back to you know this complex adaptive systems it's all part of recognizing and acknowledging that things are far messier in the real world than we really like to think they are so as academics we want to get hold of it to to have boundaries around it to study that one thing to tweak it um, but, but that's not most people's lived experience Right. And the simple way that I would tell myself is that culture is a group of people, yet within that culture, there are many cultures. Um, and I am not an expert in culture, so I can't go any deeper than that. But that, that is where we're going to leave it. Yeah. Um, so moving forward, you said this is the first study of four. Um, you said the intent is to create interventions to enhance organizational resilience. Um, can you give us more on that? Can you give us a hint or can you give us, you know, practical tips? Sure. Um, so this first study, as you say, was setting up, look, let's have a definition so that when we're talking about this thing, we're all talking about the same thing and it's endorsed by people who are working in elite sports. So I should mention that, you know, I said it was this Delphi method. It had this um, panel of experts who were really lucky that um, it was a, a really large group of um, experts. There's uh, 82 at the start, 62 at the end, but we asked them to engage over seven months. So, you know, people are busy. Um, and it, it was um, 
uh, academic experts in resilience in organizational resilience in resilience in sport um, but also people working in elite sport organizations often at quite a senior level um, sports psychologists consultants so all these people who really had kind of a say um, and then they kind of endorsed and, and um, bought into this this definition um, and we also in that study looked at some characteristics of um, resilience so what what does an organization have quite static like the culture we're talking about kind of like personality traits if you like but also their skills and capabilities what might they have that helps them be resilient then in the second study we're looking a bit deeper at the processes so what are these organizations doing what are the mechanisms that are helping them be resilient um, and this was this idea of um, uh, sensing and adapting which we were talking about earlier in terms of complex systems and also that study looked at um, strengthening the resources within an organization so that's kind of building the ability to be resilient in the future and shielding um, so you've got to say sensing and adapting you've got strengthening and then you've got shielding which is this idea that you can't be resilient if you're constantly being hit by one crisis after another, you just, you know, you're chasing your tail all the time. You need to do something to kind of protect the organization, to put a bubble around it. So that's a lot of your risk mitigation, your risk assessment processes um, and so on. So that was the second study looking at, um, as I say, sensing and adapting and strengthening and shielding. Then the third study was an ethnography. So I went into um, an elite sport organization in the UK and they were amazing gave me access to you know all the board meetings all the executive meetings told everyone in the organization look talk to Kirsten tell her how you feel be open be honest um, I had access to all their internal documents um, and uh, spent seven months with that organization uh, really getting under the skin of what was it they were doing because they'd experienced a uh, really significant change um, and they were coming out of the other end of it and it was but their CEO had kind of approached me saying look you know I think we have learned some lessons here but I'm not sure how deeply they're embedded within the organization and I'm not confident completely that if the same happened again in the future that we'd, we'd be as resilient, we'd deal as well with it. Um, so can you have a look at, you know, some of the underlying sort of psychosocial factors? Obviously, he didn't say it quite like that. Um, you know, can you have a look at what's going on um, and we can explore, um, you know, and draw out some themes about how, how this is working in practice. So that's taking a step from, it's really nice to kind of theorise about this stuff as an academic and then you get into the real world and again, it's opening yourself up to this, the messiness um, going into that. And then the fourth study um, has been taking what I've learned um, in that ethnography about, um, you know, what's happening day to day in the sport organisation and saying, OK, you know, these bits you guys are really good at, you're really strong on. These bits are a slight weakness. Um, and, and so in, with reference back to all the characteristics, the processes that we've identified, what can we do that might help with your resilience? But really importantly, it was something called, I don't know if you've um, done anything around action research, participatory action research. Uh, not familiar. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, and that's, it's not, um, again, it's not common in sports psychology. Um, it, it comes from other areas, really. And it's the idea that um, instead of doing things to people, you go to them and say, what do you want to do here? You know, I've got my um, agenda as a researcher, but what really matters to you? Uh, what do you think will have the biggest impact? And then you co-design, co-create the research. So we co-created the interventions. I sort of had some suggestions and then I put it to um, uh, the sort of senior and middle management within the organization and they said look you know we think this is really important but we're not really sure we can do something around that this is important and we, we're quite confident that we might be able to nudge that a bit so we identified some topics and we identified some people within the organization to lead them because again another really important part of this is this idea that um you know if organizations are 
um, self-organizing and this idea of, you know, this ant system and they're kind of sorting themselves out and figuring out what's best for them, then it's not particularly helpful maybe to have a researcher coming in and do interventions to them. Instead, it's better for them to figure their own way of doing this. So that was my role in my fourth study was identifying some topics that they could work on and, um, uh, you know, helping them to, to design, create and deliver these interventions and then assess instead of just saying looking at outcomes, uh, which, again, is more of a traditional way of viewing this. Let's take a questionnaire. Let's measure this, that and the other. Did it work? Didn't it? It's messier than that. Um, so instead, we're, we're looking at evaluating the whole process, you know, what, what maybe stopped it happening as well, being delivered as well as people had wanted it to be? How easy did they find it? Um, what benefits did people say that they got from it that you might not expect, that you might not pick up if you just ask people to tick some boxes? So there's that whole process evaluation around those interventions. What I won't do now is go into what we did specifically, because that was really context specific with that organization right um but some wider tips that may or may not be appropriate depending on you know what the weaknesses are within a particular organization or the areas they want to strengthen so you've got things like um i talk in my paper about structural clarity so you can that's the structure of how the communication flows about roles and responsibilities everyone knows how decisions are made so you can do a couple of things around that. You could look at um, a roles and responsibilities audit. So people come and go within an organisation and we keep their job title the same and we keep kind of the team the same. But actually what happens within that team can be quite different because of the skills of the new people who come in and replace the outgoing people. So it's looking at actually, you know, what roles and responsibilities do people actually have that reflect what they're doing rather than, the job title that was created 10 years ago when we did a structural reshuffle. So that's something that can help kind of clarify things. You can do um, an internal communications audit, which is looking at, okay, this is how we think communication flows around the organisation. But informally, how do people pick up the messages that we think we're giving them? Um, how do people hear what's going on? Um, and you can do that through, you know, a number of like focus groups and, and looking at message flows and, and mapping those. Um, scenario planning is probably my favourite for organisational resilience because it's something that hits so many different areas. So this is the idea that um, as a group, you and you do this more in teams rather than in the organisation as a whole, but you're looking at, okay, what are the risks we're facing? So you're starting to understand what's your operating environment, what risks have we got? And then as a team, you're exploring different ways of um, overcoming those potential future risks. But And I keep coming back to this. It's not necessarily about the outcomes of having a strategy. This is how we're going to deal with the risks. What's important for resilience is that as you go through that process, you are having, you're communicating, you're developing relationships within that team and you're developing um, collective efficacy, a feeling like as a team we can get through this. Um, so that's to me, it's that process you go through that's really important in scenario um, uh, type interventions rather than, you know, this is the output, this is a policy that, that we're going to use at the end of the day. Very informational and, um, you know, let me hash the first part of that answer first. Um, not hash, address. You know, I I think it's really deliberate and thought out how you guys have um, aligned your research, um, you know, projects. And I'm excited to see what the ethnographic uh, research results are. Uh, I think that's a really um, cool experience that you went through and to, you know, experience that firsthand. Um, and it seems a lot of the practical um, tips or interventions you are planning are kind of based on the characteristics that you've outlined for organizational resilience overall. Mm -hmm. Talking about structural clarity, uh, flexible improvement, you know, shared understanding, reciprocal commitment, um, and operational awareness. Something that you said before was that um, a big part of 
the interventions were based on structural clarity. And similar to that, a lot of sports psychology uh, performance consultants work on role clarity, uh, understanding their position within a team. It's it's very similar to what you were saying before. Um, you know, back to on a personal note, uh, this will be my last question. Um, what is success for you as a PhD student? And, you know, what are you looking forward to for the rest of your time as a grad student? Oh, that's a really good question. Hmm. Um, so at the moment, I'm at a stage where I've, I've kind of done the, the, um, the research design and then carrying out the research, which was the really um, exciting bit for me, you know, going and talking to people, essentially understanding their world, trying to understand and bring um, all these different perspectives, hearing about so many different experiences um, of significant change when people have been working in sport has been really, um, really a privilege. Um, and the, the data analysis and the writing up can be a bit dry because it's very, um, although, you, you know, you're working in a, a team, um, a research team, it's, it's quite in, individualistic. But, you know, drawing out some of these threads that, you know, are there in, in the, the data and kind of making sense of them and deciding how to package them up. Um, and it, for me, again, the data is not just there's an answer there it's there's lots of stories being told and, and you're kind of the narrator and you're deciding what story to tell that best you feel best represents what people have given their time to tell you about um so yeah. i'm i'm loving the part about you know as i say weaving that that story um that, that people have been talking to me about into something quite cohesive um, and that might be useful for other people. And then, you know, this is then the, the, the part about disseminating research, which you've been, you know, so kind to reach out to me. And, you know, you've got this podcast and it's a great platform for um, people that, you know, researchers to come and talk about their research. And, you know, thank you for that. Um, but then it's really exciting to hear people you know, take up this and say, well, either no, I disagree with that, or that's really interesting, that's really helpful. So this idea that perhaps it might make organisations, you know, might make it a, a better place to be in terms of the experience of the individuals within those organisations, you know, that's ultimately um, what it's all about. So, so as you say, it's it's still weaving the story, um, but the, the next big bit is, you know, getting that coming back at me of, what people are thinking and how they're applying it is the bit I'm really excited about. Yeah, that was very well said. And uh, thank you for appreciating your time here. I appreciated your time here. I'm really looking forward to some of the other research that you are going to be putting out. Um, it seems like Nottingham, Trent with, you know, Mustafa, you guys are doing some phenomenal work over there uh, and excited to follow that as well. Um, you know, and overall, just thank you for your time here today. I learned a lot. Thanks, Sonny. We really appreciate it.